Welcome to the I'm Still Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Whitlow. I've been reading and studying the Bible my entire life, but I still have a lot of questions, and I'm still learning what it means. Each episode, we will take a look at what the Bible has to say and what it means to us today. Today in episode three, I'm discussing the second of the Ten Commandments as part of the Ordered Life series. This week's teaching is called No Substitutes. When I look at the second commandment, my first thought is, all right, this one's easy. I got this one nailed. I got no problems with this one. Because here's what it says. We're in Exodus chapter 20. It says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Okay, so if you're like me, you're in no danger of bowing down and worshiping a statue. So it's on to command number three. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Or is it? As with most things, this command requires a closer look. This command is about much more than praying to a statue. These days, we like to condense deep and complicated issues down to a slogan that can be written on a poster board or printed on a bumper sticker. These slogans are intended not to initiate discussion, but to shut it down. We state our position, sometimes very loudly, and if you agree with me, then you are my friend. If you disagree, then we cannot be friends, and I can't even listen to how you came to disagree with me. You know what? That's a real shame. There are very few issues that can be clearly and completely understood by one phrase, and the refusal to listen to those who disagree with our position is a real missed opportunity for us to learn, and even more importantly, It is a missed opportunity for us to represent Jesus well. But enough about that. Let's make sure that we're not bowing down to idols. First, let's talk about what this commandment is not saying. It is not saying that pictures and statues are bad. Before there were written languages, mankind drew pictures and fashioned images of people and objects from nature to help them convey stories or history. And, in its strictest sense, our letters of the alphabet are visible images that represent the sounds of our words, and our numbers are written images of values. So to say that the command says no images whatsoever would mean that God violated his own command when he engraved these commandments on tablets of stone. And it's not saying that having an image to aid in our worship of God is wrong. The image of the cross is a powerful symbol of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice that paid the penalty that our sin deserved. 
the image of the cross displayed in a church is an instant confirmation that that church is a Christ-following church. Images that depict Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, standing at the door and knocking, or the iconic portrait pose, are representations of what the artist imagined Jesus to look like, because obviously there are no actual photographs of Jesus. But they serve to illustrate the mission, the passion, and the love of Jesus. The pictures may not look anything like Jesus actually looked, but they help us internalize his nature toward us. So we can't sum up this second command by just saying, no images. No, because if you look closely at the text, what it prohibits is the making an idol of an image. And there's a big difference between having an image and making an idol of an image. Here's an example from the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21 tells us of one of the many times that the Israelites complained about what God was doing for them on their journey to the land that God had promised to them. A plague of poisonous snakes came after them, and many suffered deadly bites. Moses, their leader, prayed that God would end the plague. God told Moses to make an image of a snake and put it on a pole where everyone could see it. So Moses made an image of a snake out of bronze, mounted it to a pole, and displayed it. Everyone who had been bitten and looked at the snake image recovered from their bite. Plague ended. Life went on. Yeah, cool miracle. It was the God-given solution to a unique situation. Now, fast forward many years. Israel is now a nation, but they have turned away from God. Hezekiah becomes king and enacts reforms with the purpose of leading his people back to God. One of the things he had to do was to destroy the bronze snake that Moses had made so many years ago. Why? Because the people had begun to burn incense to it. It was no longer a monument to God's miraculous intervention in a certain time. It had become an idol. The same statue the same image, but a different mindset. What is dangerous about the idols is that they become our go-to and we leave God out. And God is the one with the authority and power in heaven and earth. So to make an idol of something is to take something that is good by itself and give it undue importance as a mean of identification with a group, a condition of relationship, or an obstacle to coming to God. And that happens far more often than we want to admit. Years ago, church folks held strong allegiance to their denominational brand. It's not really a thing now, but when I was a boy, I was regularly reminded that our group had the right beliefs and the other groups fell short. Now, we stopped short of saying that the other denominations weren't saved, but if you really wanted to know for sure, you needed to join our bunch. Now, it is a good thing to be involved in a Christ-following denomination and to be in agreement with this doctrine. But when a person decides that unless you belong to my group, we can't be in fellowship, then you are not right with God, then that person has elevated their denomination to idol status. 
Now, church music has been a huge idol issue in recent years. Every generation has its own music, but for several generations, church music stayed very similar in style. But over the past several decades, the style has shifted dramatically. Pianos and organs were replaced by worship bands. Hymnals were discarded. And songs that had been sung by generations were no longer sung. This is currently a very creative time for church music, and that is a good thing. But what is really sad is how much division that church music has brought to the body of Christ. What has happened is that too often, both sides of the music issue have allowed their style or preference to be elevated to idol status. One side says, these new songs don't have the meaning that the old hymns had. And the other side says, it's a new day, Granny. We're not doing old school anymore. And both miss a great opportunity to build intergenerational relationships because unless you bow to the idol of a style of music, you can't be respected or even listened to. You know, we believe the Bible to be God's holy word to the world. We give it authority to instruct and correct us in matters of life. But even something as essential as the Bible can be turned into an idol. Now, we are fortunate that there are a number of great translations of the Bible that are done with the ultimate desire to translate it as accurately as possible. I've read many different translations and have found that each one causes me to draw the same conclusions about what the Bible says. However, some folks jump on the bandwagon of a certain translation as being the only true translation. And if you don't see it their way, then you must be uninformed, or even worse, a false believer. In that instance, their favored translation has become an idol. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm still okay. I don't even know what denomination my church is. I like the music I like, and you can go ahead and like the music you like. And when I read the Bible, I'm not really thinking about which translation it is. So yeah, I believe I'm good. But these things are just the tip of the iceberg of things that are good in and of themselves, but become idols when we make them more important than they should be. Here, I'm talking about our political affiliations, our love of country, support of certain groups, love of recreation and sports, and our rights as individuals. Each of these are good things, and they have great value in their right place. But when we decide that those who do not hold to our way of thinking about these things are automatically bad people, or we treat others with contempt just because they have different views, we have made idols of those things. Now, don't get me wrong. We should be passionate about our beliefs. We should know why we believe what we believe, and we should be prepared to attempt to persuade others to come to our way of thinking. In no way am I saying that all beliefs are equally valid. But what I am saying is that when we allow idols to substitute for a true relationship with Christ— we send a faulty message to the world about Jesus who gave himself as a sacrifice for all, even those who wanted nothing to do with him and who wants all to come to him. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, 
but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. As Christians, we have a great responsibility to represent Christ well in this world. We have been given the commission to make disciples in every corner of the world and the command to love others the way we want to be loved. This second commandment ends a little strangely. It talks about the sins of the parents being laid on their children and extended blessing on the families who faithfully follow the commandment. I think what this means to us today is that as people who call ourselves Christians, we set the temperature in our environments. If we sow distrust and anger in our families and among our friends, and if we put up obstacles that make it more difficult for others to come to Christ, that attitude of distrust and anger will come back to us. The things that we place ahead of a right relationship with Jesus will eventually cause us great disappointment and pain. Maybe for you, and maybe for your children, and even for your grandchildren. But if you live a life of letting nothing get ahead of your close relationship with Jesus Christ, then nothing that happens to you in life will shake your faith in Him, and you will show to everyone around you the unmistakable blessing that comes from placing your complete trust in your loving Heavenly Father. The joy and peace that you display will be a greater testimony to your children and to those around you than anything that you could say by holding a poster board or displaying a bumper sticker. That consistency and the peace and confidence you display even in tough situations is what sets you apart as being someone who genuinely lives an ordered life. I hope you'll take some time to reflect and see what idols you might not have even been aware of that you can give up. Because, once again, what first appears as a simple and stern command is found to be a loving invitation to give up something that is not nearly as important as you thought it was and is keeping you from experiencing your own ordered life through a saving relationship with Jesus. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of the I'm Still Learning Podcast. Next week, I will talk about the third of the Ten Commandments as part of the Ordered Life series in a teaching called Watch Your Mouth. See you next week.